Welcome to the Be Perfectly Healthy podcast, an integrative health podcast by Center for New Medicine. We created the Be Perfectly Healthy podcast as an extension of our mission to educate and empower individuals along their health journey. This integrative health podcast will bring you in-depth expert interviews on a plethora of health topics. Tune in bi-weekly for interviews on how to create a non-toxic lifestyle, integrative approaches to treating complex health concerns like diabetes, Lyme's, Hashimoto's, Crohn's, adrenal fatigue, mental, emotional, and spiritual health, cancer prevention, early cancer detection, integrative cancer treatments, and so much more. Through the Be Perfectly Healthy podcast, we hope to provide cutting-edge, science-based information you can use to create a happier and healthier life for you and your loved ones. Welcome back to the Be Perfectly Healthy podcast. I'm your host, Leanne Lindsay, and today we have a guest, Dr. Suzanne Wadia Ells, on the podcast to discuss her book, Busting Breast Cancer, which will be linked in the show notes. And I have to say, you guys, this was such a fun interview. Dr. Wadia Ells is an investigative researcher, and so she has spent most of her life diving into so many different topics and she shares what really got her interested in breast cancer was just seeing how many of her close friends and family were being diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and so she has spent years compiling research for this book she I love how in the interview she says it's almost like five books in one because she's looking at the economic history of breast cancer. She's looking at the pharmaceutical history of breast cancer and so many different facets of it, but really dives in on, we talk a little bit about how cancer is not a genetic disease, it's a metabolic disease. And we talk about what the difference between those two is. And then she shares her five tips or the five must-dos to help prevent breast cancer that she talks about in her book. And what I love about this is, again, she's we're diving into a little bit of history and her, her personal history, but I love that in the book, it's really focusing on preventing breast cancer, not necessarily treating it, which Dr. Keneally talks about this all the time, is there's very few people actually talking about preventing cancer. And so there's just so much good information in this interview. She is such a wealth of knowledge and just enthusiasm and passion. So with that, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Wadia Els. Well, Dr. Wadia Els, welcome to the Be Perfectly Healthy podcast. Well, thanks, Leanne. I'm delighted to be here. So as we were talking just a little bit earlier, Dr. Keneally was so excited for the team to reach out and have you on. She's read your book, but for the audience member, for the patient at the center who hasn't heard of you yet, can you give us just a little bit of your background? Oh, sure, sure. I'm probably the most unlikely person to have written this book. Um, I had my first and last biology course as sophomore year in high school, which I like to say is like 1908 at this point. 
And, um, and, but I'm an investigative reporter. I, I've just always been a change agent, working within corporations, working within the political economy, um, and, and have always loved writing and both autobiographical writing but also working on the international level as well as the national level. So I, I spearheaded the first affirmative action plan way back in the 70s at Polaroid. And it was like the first time women had come together and given, a, this, in this fact, this was the first uh, Fortune 200 uh, corporation to ever adopt an affirmative action plan for women. And so it became the blueprint for smaller and larger companies after that. Um, and then I've, I've done a lot, I've lived in a lot of different cultures in the Middle East, in Africa, in India. Um, and so I'm used to sort of going into new places and figuring out the lay of the land. Mm -hmm. So that when so many of my friends were dying um, and ha are still dying of recurrent metastatic breast cancer, I said, you know, I don't want to get this disease. So let me use all of my skills, my change agent skills, my political economy skills, my women's autobiographical PhD skills, the research skills that I've developed over my life. Let me use them all and really, you know, put myself into voluntary poverty for as long as it takes to figure out what is causing this epidemic. I just felt it was an unnecessary one and it was a fear-based one. And that's what I found. It is an unnecessary fear-based epidemic. Mm. And so in many ways, um, someone who is invested in the cancer industry, you know, their mortgage payments depend on treating more people for cancer the way they were instructed, not educated, but instructed, makes them not a good candidate to write this book because they have too many prejudices in their, in their brain. And this is why Dr. Keneally is so unique because she has the traditional background and she's also not letting that completely guide her. She's looking at what else is out there and what is giving other groups good results and integrating all of that. So um, so I was delighted again to be invited to, to do the oh, podcast. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and so one of the questions was going to be, what was the catalyst? Because I was going through your bio and saw yeah. what an investigative journalist you were, all the different topics. And so the catalyst, it sounds like for you was really just, you had a lot of close personal friends and connections who were getting breast cancer. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and I just, I got scared. I got mad. And I said, you know, this is the most horrific disease and I don't want to get it. Mm -hmm. And um, if I can do my own research for myself, I can also then help many others, which is just a natural instinct for many of us, I think. Well, and for someone who is who works so closely with Dr. Keneally, we know we're hearing all day long all the research that she is constantly gathering. So I have to imagine what an undertaking and also the, the information is so convoluted, although you're probably used to that because it's probably convoluted in every other industry and situation as well. But what was it like those first few days, weeks, as you were gathering information? Were you just like deer in the headlights? What is going on here? Well, for the first three or four years, all I had were epidemiological studies, statistical studies that said, we have found that 
this group of women under 50 or over 50 or whatever who took, who, who are taking progestin drugs, let's say, um, the birth control drugs for the under 50 and the menopausal combination uh, drugs, and both of them contain this thing called progestin, that they, they develop breast cancer at much, much, much higher rates than women who don't touch that progestin. And, and then I'm realizing that um, Planned Parenthood isn't talking about this, that the National Cancer Institute's not talking about this, the Center for Disease, the CDC, is not talking about this. And I'm like, what's the matter? I can access these statistical studies. They've been going on for three decades, 70s, 80s, 90s, and I started this around 2007 or 8, my research. And everyone's ignoring these very, very solid statistical studies. And we're talking hundreds. And so that's how I spent my first three or four years, just absolutely going through all the statistical studies, or they, you know, epidemiological, as they call them, um, on birth control drugs and other progestin drugs and, and breast cancer. And then I started looking at mammograms, and I got into the research of Dr. Gil... Um, Welsh, who's now at Brigham and Women's at Harvard, and he is showing worldwide that mammograms don't decrease women's death from breast cancer. In fact, what he's begun to show is that mammograms are increasing the rate of breast cancer, and we can talk about that later when we mm -hmm. get into the five simple steps of what women should avoid, and mammograms are probably the first one. Well, and I don't know what Dr. Keneally thinks about this. We haven't personally talked about this. Um, and I don't think she's written about this. If she has, I apologize, I've missed it. But, um, but they are very dangerous to women and it's not the radiation. So we can talk about that. that yeah, you know. well, and I'm just so curious, what were some other initial statistics or findings that you came across that just left you awestruck at how do people not know this? Well, I mean, in 2010, I found this piece of research that had been published in Nature, which is, some would say, the second or third most lauded scholarly journal in the scientific community. And it said exactly, almost precisely, how the progestin not only creates breast cancer in women, but accelerates any existing breast cancer tumors in women. And that document, I only got, I only got wind of it because it came across a Google alert one day in October of 2010. And I quickly grabbed it and nobody but the Science Direct, I think they're called, they're wonderful, they, they sort of do daily uh, reports on new research had done a summary and, and, and basically, you know, uh, sent it out, sent, sent this press release out. After that, it was sort of wiped from the public view. Wow. And I quote that in chapter five, no, chapter four in my book, I, I show line and verse of that, of that study, the paragraphs from that study that, that clearly tell us how and why that proge those progestin drugs are creating premenopausal breast cancer and postmenopausal breast mm -hmm. cancer. So it was that kind of research 
that made me really suspicious about what is going on and why aren't women being told this and why aren't our government institutions telling us this. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it, it was not nice. Um, the other thing I discovered, Leanne, going into this was um, all I had were these statistical studies until 2013. I didn't have any theory. What I was shocked to find from women when they go in to see their oncologist at Sloan Kettering, at Dana-Farber, at their community hospitals, they're on, they'll say, doctor, why me? Why did I get breast cancer? What did I do wrong? I, you know, I do this right. And the doctors look at them and they actually say to them, Leanne, Jennifer, um, probably we're not really sure. Maybe you were just the unlucky one. Or Jennifer, maybe it was just your turn. Or Jennifer, maybe it runs in your family and you don't know. Women who are adopted are being told to get mammograms from the time they're 30 or 35 because we don't know your family history. And they're the ones, if you did a study of adopted women who follow that protocol, they have a much higher rate. I haven't seen any study done, but I believe just because of my personal interactions with adopted women and breast cancer, that they are getting more breast cancer than if they hadn't had all of those mammograms, quote, because you're adopted, we don't know. And so that was where I was for the first five years of this research. I only had these statistical studies that, that showed this causes it, that causes it. Um, you know, the xenohormones, which are incredibly horrific and prolific in our society and some beautiful research. So Silent Spring Institute is the best. Mm -hmm. They have just spent decades looking at the various chemicals that actually operate like, like excess hormones in our bodies and how they really ratchet up breast cancer risks. But these were all statistical studies. Nobody had a theory for how breast cancer or any cancer begins. Mm -hmm. And so thank goodness, Dr. Thomas Seifried, he's a Boston College geneticist, biologist. He's had, I don't know, four or five years, uh, four or five decades of experience working in preclinical, which means working with mice. And, and he's worked on metastatic tumors and various unique genetic diseases and stuff. And he finally came to the conclusion that cancer is not a genetic disease. And no one else had been willing or able to put that research together to actually publish a textbook that showed exactly why and how cancer is not a genetic disease, but it is what we call a metabolic disease. It is caused by how the environment hits us and how we deal with the environment and what kind of pills we put in us and what kind of radiation we get, et cetera, et cetera. And at that point, I could go on with my book. I was getting very depressed around 2011, 2012. I was sort of doing other things, you know, because I, I wasn't going to publish a book of more what I call peanut butter studies, you know, laugh, laugh, Jennifer, if you eat a lot of, you know, organic peanut butter, we find that those women don't get as much breast cancer as those who hate peanut butter. So <laughs> eat peanut butter, you know, women don't drink, eat peanut butter, you know, work on a trampoline, don't run. I mean, all this stupid stuff based on statistics and not biology. Hmm. And Thomas Seifried, Dr. Seifried, put it together, Payne took him 10 years, he and his graduate students at Boston College, 
they did the investigative research with their biologically astute minds and they put together this gorgeous textbook that Wiley and Sons published in 2012. I think it's made over a million plus bucks for Wiley at this point. Biologists who really care are grabbing it. I'm sure mm -hmm. Dr. Keneally has it in her library. It's called Cancer as a Metabolic Disease. On the origin, management, we don't call cure yet, we call it management and prevention of cancer. And at that point, I could understand the biology enough. I contacted him, bless him. I said, can one of your research assistants review my work? I'm, I'm now gonna put these statistical studies in with your theory. And I wanna make sure I've got it correctly, you uh -huh. know. And he said, forget the research assistants. I'll take a look. You're, wow. you know, you're doing good work. So he has written a beautiful foreword. Here's the book, right? The Busting Breast Cancer, right? And he's written a very generous, beautiful forward to the book. And so as a result, the entire small but growing um, metabolic oncology community worldwide has embraced my book. Wow. And I even have, I'd sent out an electronic copy before we came up with the, with the, 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 um, the full manuscript. And bless them, I've got, I don't know, I've got like five pages of advanced, you know, lauding praise for the book, and they're from all over the world from these metabolic oncologists because they too were excited that they finally could say to a patient, Jennifer, let's look at what you've done in your past life. Oh, you did fertility drugs. Oh, you did progestin drugs. Oh, you don't know what your vitamin D3 level is. Oh, it looks like it's 25. It looks like, you know, you almost rickets level. You know, we could now then really say to a woman, look, there are many things you can do to stop the development of breast cancer, and they're all based on biology. But still, today, cancer um, centers are ignoring all of this. Medical schools are so influenced by the pharmaceutical companies who would lose so much money if people started to treat breast cancer, all cancers, as a metabolic disease that can be managed and in many cases can be stopped. Though I don't think any oncologist is talking about um, absolute resolution yet, but in, in fact, some patients are finding that. Well, a couple things. One, I'm so curious about where, you know, you're saying there's, you know, kind of now a growing group of metabolic oncologists or just metabolic doctors who are looking at it from this perspective. How exciting was that? And where are they? Where are they hiding? Sure, sure. Well, there, uh, one, um, there's an interesting uh, there's a wonderful naturopathic physician by the, by the name of Dr. Nasha Winters. And she's drnasha.com, D-R-N-A-S-H-A.com. And she is now training. She basically um, went through stage four, which is metastatic uh, ovarian cancer, when she was like 20 years old. She was a pre-med student. She'd been sick her whole life, lived apparently in a very high-stress you know, childhood uh, household, and was really sick. And they, when they discovered she had the metastatic ovarian cancer, 
her organs were about to shut down, so they didn't give her chemo. And she'll tell you that's what saved me. I never got chemo. And so she she really wasn't eating. She she, she just instinctively, and she, she did some research to learn some things about cancer. And, you know, she had a lot of grace surrounding her at the same time. And she came through it. And she is is amazingly healthy today. She just did the trek in Europe, you know, I'm forgetting the via something, you know, the backpack. Mm, Anyways, so and she's, through she's, Spain, she, yeah. Yeah, yeah, she's 50 years old now, just turned 50. And, um, and what she's doing now is she stopped seeing individual patients as a naturopathic physician, and she's only training uh, MDs and NDs in the metabolic well, metabolic treatment, because they're mainly dealing with treatment. Mm -hmm. um, she and others have embraced my book like crazy because it's the first one focused on prevention of breast cancer based on the metabolic theory. Mm -hmm. And because I didn't have any biological background, everything I say in here is backed up by two or three references. So every chapter, the end notes of every chapter is filled with hundreds of statistical, you know, um, citations. Mm -hmm. um, so, so drnasha.com, you can go on her website and she has a growing list of practitioners all over the country, as well as Canada, Egypt. She's, she's gone international and she does these, I don't know if they're eight, 10 week, longer than that, uh, Zoom sessions with the physicians. And now they are able to integrate their past clinical experience with the, the current knowledge of the metabolic um, theory of cancer and, and the treatment. So that's one way that people can do it. Another way is something called care oncology. And they're now in the U.S. They started out in Great Britain. They're now in the U.S. and they're all telemedicine as many of Dr. Nash's practitioners will do telemedicine because we're not talking about necessarily radiation or any chemo, or if it is chemo, it's very little. Most cases, I think it's not. They're using antiparasitics. They're using ketogenic diets because, you know, if you want, we can talk about the, the difference between the metabolic theory of cancer, which we really should do, and the current mainstream money-making mm -hmm. genetic um, concept or theory of cancer and why the metabolic makes so much more sense. So you've got drnasha.com, you've got uh, Care Oncology, and um, Dr. Seafried, he is amazing. If you um, email him at Boston College, he has a um, a list of resources that he keeps expanding. And because of who he is and the people that flock to him and the physicians that flock to him, he has developed his own list, in addition to those two I've mentioned, of other medical people who have seen the light and have said, I don't need to massacre my patients and take wow. all their money, you know, putting them through the genetic... Um, Model of treatment, you know, um, because as Dr. Seifried loves to say, or does say often, he may not love to say it. Whenever you see a woman or a man who's lost all their hair because of their cancer treatments, you know that their oncologist does not understand the origin of the disease they are treating. Mm. 
that the first thing doctors are taught is to, to heal a patient, you first do not harm them. Mm. And, you know, they can tell us that 1,600 people a day are dying of cancer, all sorts of cancer in the United States, five or 6,000 in China because of the population difference, right? You know, but the reality is we know three or four more times that number of people are dying every day from strokes, from, um, from suicide, from um, uh, the, the, their, their um, heart, early heart attacks, all of these things being caused by the, quote, cancer treatments mm -hmm. that the genetic cancer industry is giving people. So the treatments are killing more people, it would seem, if anyone could ever get any money to do that study, and you can't get that money, let me no. tell you. Mm -hmm. So, and people know this, and, and that's why, but the sad thing is the wealthy people with the big time insurance plans and the extra, you know, couple million bucks in their uh, portfolios, they're the ones spending all the money and dying on the genetic treatments. As Dr. Seifert says, you're better off being poor or middle class if you develop cancer, because you can't afford that other stuff. Your insurance won't cover a lot of it. So you're better off doing metabolic and getting better. Mm -hmm. So it's really, we're dealing with a very ironic, I mean, it's kind of like the same the thing going on with COVID right now. You know, people who are willing to take that ivermectin as a preventative and get their D3 up and stuff, you know, they're fine. Um, oh yeah. Most of the oh cases, yeah. You know. Well, so. and it's you know I think Dr. Keneally and just the center in general are in a tricky position in that there's certain things we can't talk about. We just can't share very right. broadly and publicly. Right. But thank God for people like you, for people like Dr. Seafried. I'm sure she already knows about him. Oh but sure. I'm so oh, sure. I'm so glad, and I wanted to, you to share just a few of those connections that way anyone listening can also go do their own research we're very education heavy and really encourage the audience to learn and educate yourself in as many ways as possible yeah yeah well i think before we do the five simple steps which is what everyone really wants to know and should know obviously and the purpose of my book i mean i innocently went into this thinking i was just going to find five simple steps in the end i turned <laughs> this book turned out to be not only a biology book thanks to dr seafried but an economic uh, you know a book on the economics of and why this is an unnecessary disease because of so much money they're making on not only because of mammograms but also because of they're developing, they're creating, in many cases, recurrent metastatic breast cancer. The treatments are creating those. I'm sure it's not all of them, but it's certainly many of them. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also a political book, and it's also, of course, a how-to book. Um, so the biology is the core of it, right? Um, and the difference between the metabolic theory and the genetic theory is the difference between night and day or the genetic oncologist at Sloan Kettering in your community cancer center. They believe that the earth is flat. Dr. Seifert has shown with his textbook that the earth is round. But you can't tell someone back in how many other centuries ago it was who believed the earth was flat. You could not convince even the most educated being mm -hmm. that in fact it wasn't flat, it's round. 
And so that's where we are today, you know, trying to teach oncologists and the public that the earth is round. And the difference is that the genetic theory, they believe that somehow, some way, they're not sure yet, something weird happens in the nucleus of your, let's say, breast cell you know, the epithelial and the lobal lining of the breast cell, which is where the cancer happens for women and men in, in breast cancer. And so since something strange is happening, they then are focusing on what then takes place. So then the oncogene is activated and then the cancer cell or the breast cell becomes cancerous and then it stops being a, the lining of your breast lobe or your breast, you know, um, duct and it just starts to duplicate mindlessly and what Dr. Steve and and so then they're trying to attack these mindlessly duplicating cells and stop them just but this like a frontal attack right Mm -hmm. we'll get maybe we can we'll cut it out you know and even if we're not sure if it's still there we'll still cut it out and then we'll 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 hit it with the radiation and burn it We'll get some healthy cells too, but say la vie, we'll burn it. And then we'll fill that per, the woman in terms of breast cancer with lots of nasty, toxic drugs. You know, that the person administering it's got a mask on, they've got, they've got gloves on, they don't want it to touch them, but they'll give it to their patient, right? So that's how the genetic industry's working, blasted away. And I've heard Dr. Keneally say, you only use surgery when you really are in desperate need so that the colon is totally blocked. So if you can go in and just gently surgically remove that, okay, definitely use surgery. But in other cases, you know, these prophylactic mastectomies, they're amputating women's breasts and, you know, it's just, it's a travesty. It's a travesty. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so that's the approach of the genetic crowd. They really don't know. We don't know, Cornelia, why you got breast cancer, but we're going to fix you. We're going to bomb you out, right? The metabolic group now understands, thanks to Dr. Seifert and many that have gone before him, and he lauds them all and cites them all, is that when the mitochondria, the power batteries, those little amoeba-like, we got 70 or 80 of these guys in each of our breast cells, when those poor things, they, they need oxygen, you know, they're our life force, right? You, you stop oxygen from going into a person, and I don't know how many seconds they're dead or minutes they're dead, you know. It, it doesn't work very well if a person can't get oxygen into their cells. And so that's what happens, so that the progestin goes in and suffocates the progestin from the birth control drugs, let's say, go and, says, and, it, and we've now shown that these these mainstream blue blue star whatever um researchers have shown exactly how the progestin suffocates um, the mitochondria though they don't use that term suffocates the mitochondria but they they show you how it works um and and the uh, you know an imbalance of hormones will attack the mitochondria it becomes toxic you know we like to have estrogen and progesterone are wonderful hormones just so they're balanced they're they're integrating with one another and you don't have excess estrogen be it chemical estrogen or natural estrogen surging through your body and basically it's like acid you know hitting something very 
you know, alkaline and it burns, right? So you don't want to, you don't, so a lot of things will suffocate the mitochondria. And what Dr. Seifried found is, ah, once that mitochondria suffocates, it screams to the nucleus in its cell and it says, I'm suffocating and I can't breathe oxygen anymore. And what that does then is the nucleus, the, 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 when it's suffocating, it basically tells the nucleus in the cell, it, it, that, the suffocation kicks off the, um, the, the oncogene to basically turn the cell into a fermenting single cell bacteria. If that makes oh. any sense, and 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 uh, there was a um, a wonderful scientist. Her, she initially married um, Sagan. They had a couple of kids, then they divorced. She went. Her name was Lynn Mergulis, and she then went on um, to from the University of Chicago to Boston University, and then eventually to UMass Amherst. But she stuck her neck out in the 60s and she said you know guys these mitochondria they were in prehistoric times they were single cell bacteria they were like a compost heap and of course in prehistoric mm -hmm. times there was not enough oxygen for anything to be processing oxygen there was a lot of glucose apparently in the atmosphere so everything was just multiplying exponentially like the compost heaps in our backyards and so, you know, how do you feed the compost heap and make it make more black earth? You dump garbage on it, right? And those little single cell bacteria that the our mitochondria in our mammal cells actually came from those single cell prehistoric fermenting mitochondria. And now they're dealing, they've regenerated they can do oxygen as well as when you suffocate those guys they become single cell bacteria and they're forming mindless tumors wow. so dr seifert's book describes what other than glucose are there any other fuels that are feeding those multiplying little single cell bacteria things mm -hmm. and he said ah it looks like it's it's um, glutamine. Well, that's a problem. Glutamine. I mean, it's fine when you're treating something to cut out the glucose in a person's diet, but you glutamine is the most prevalent amino acid in our bodies, and the most important apparently to keep us healthy. So the trick now in the treatment industry is they're working with taking in the metabolic treatment centers. They're working to lower a person's glucose because that's doing nothing but feeding the cancer cells. Mm -hmm. And our healthy cells have alternatives that they can use. They don't need glucose. But, but our healthy cells, as I said, need the glutamine. And so um, what they're doing is they're using uh, anti-parasitic drugs now. They're trying to figure out what is a, uh, an anti-parasitic drug that apparently it's many of them will attack the glutamine in our bodies. But you have to basically get those cancer cells so weak, which is taking away the glucose, mm -hmm. 
so that you can give the person very small amounts of these glute, they call them glutamine antigens or these things, the, the, these repurposed drugs they're using that go after the glutamine, but only they only want to give you a little bit so they, that repurposed drug can't harm your healthy cells, but it only goes after your weakest cells, which at this point are your cancer cells because you've taken away the glutamine. So what I've done now is I may have confused your audience because I've gone from the science into the effective treatment. So I apologize. <laughs> but, but, but the effective treatment is not very expensive. Right. What, I think what I want to point out here is just the difference between looking at cancer as a genetic disease versus a metabolic disease is... Yes. One is that you are an unfortunate victim, and that's the end of the story. Yes. The other one is I play a role in my health, yes. and there are many, many, many things I can do yes. to get ahead of this. Right, right. And, and I like to say this book is five different books in one. We did the biology. We did the economics. It's a political book. We can't trust the CDC. We can't trust the National Academy of Medicine. We can't trust the National Cancer Institute. And my book goes into detail on all of that. And it's also the how-to book. The fifth book that I've written here is a woman's empowerment book. And, and breast cancer, this unnecessary epidemic, is a fear-based operation. It's a fear-based operation because... They're using mammograms and the GD pink ribbon campaign to make a woman feel that she is so guilty, that she owes her family, her neighbors, her friends, and my, hopefully they think, you know, herself, the obligation to go have her breast smashed, have radiation poured into her soft tissue that sits there, right? And this is how the cancer industry is unnecessarily treating possibly 10,000 women a year in the United States. Often women will say, oh, they found it early, I'm so lucky, stage zero, or oh, they found it early, I'm so lucky, stage one. And what the researchers, the ones who are really concerned, what they're finding out is you don't wanna to touch stage zero, it's not breast cancer. You want to use preventative issues that we can talk about now. And stage one, the same thing. Those tumors are usually this big. You can't feel them. You can only find them from a mammogram. They're indolent. They're not doing anything. They've probably been there 10, 20, 30 years. You'll probably die with them if you just leave them alone. And therefore, we get into, well, if no mammograms, then what do you do? Well, you do breast self-exams. You have fun doing breast massages with you or your partner. I mean, you know your breasts, you keep touching them, you get them out of these steel-encased bras all the time. You know, I don't know whatever happened to nipples. I thought they were okay. I thought they were part of our <laughs> I biology. Thought we were, I thought we were freeing them. In the 70s, we were allowed to, you know, like be happy and, you know, and <laughs> have nipples. It was part of us, you know. But now, you know, it's hard to find a bra that doesn't have wires and doesn't have padding. And, you know, and, and I think... Um, and, and the industry was very smart to really highlight breast cancer because women, unfortunately, have been told that their value is based on the size of their breasts. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, women will, 
eagerly without thinking about it, without knowing, will say, oh, yes, well, if you think I have this may be wrong with me or that may be wrong, yes, take them off. Oh, you're going to, and I can choose my breast size, or I can have bigger ones or smaller ones. And then the studies are showing that when women have had breast amputations and then they go for reconstruction, 70% of them, uh, no, they, when they don't go for reconstruction, reconstruction and they go it's called going flat mm-hmm. 70% and 70% of them are so happy with that decision wow because they have their own bodies you know you talk with women who have these reconstructed breasts they don't as susan love once said like 30 years ago i found this in a book patient no more fascinating book the political aspects of breast cancer it's hard to find but it's um it's worth it. As she said, you know, false boobs, they don't feel the same to the feeler, feeler and they don't feel at all to the feely. Mm. And so it's like having this appendage, you know, attached yeah. to your body. Yeah, So it's, that you it's, can't connect with. Yeah, it's so interesting. Right, right, right. So basically... Um, this is absolutely a woman's empowerment book. And probably the, the last sentence in the book says, <clears throat> given the cast of characters, individual women together as a group is the only group that can ever stop this unnecessary breast cancer epidemic. And we need to the five simple steps. The way to do it is we stop breast cancer from happening in our own bodies, right? And the five simple steps, here we go, segue in, right? (laughs) The five simple steps are we basically want to detox our body. And this may be the most important. And thank God for Silent Spring Institute. Thank God for Breast Cancer Fund. They've now renamed themselves to um, Breast Cancer Prevention Partners. They're both in... um, and Breast Cancer Action, also out in, in uh, the San Francisco area, um, has done wonderful work looking at the political aspects of this unnecessary breast cancer epidemic. Um, but um, so, so anyway, so the five simple steps are that to clear out your body and your mind, stress, high stress and breast cancer. incidents apparently are really connected more than colon cancer um, brain cancer you know from what I've read not that I'm I've read extensively on other cancers I haven't but certainly the studies are there and women will tell you I got my first (laughs) breast cancer diagnosis two years after my first divorce I got my second breast cancer diagnosis two years after my second divorce I'm not getting married anymore you know Mm. I mean they've got that but the stress and of course you know and therefore wealthy women get more breast cancer than middle class women and poor women get more breast cancer than middle-class women. And those statistics are there. And then the question Mm. is, well, why is that? Well, wealthy women have a lot of chemicals. You know, here come the gardeners and they're gonna spray everything. Here comes their, um, their their cleaning team. They're going to spray everything. If they have a ton of money, they're going to have a live-in housekeeper. And she has to really show that she's doing something. So she's spraying everything all around every day, right? They're taking 55 different showers a day. 
you know, with chlorinated water because they went to the club, they worked out, they went to play golf, they did all these different things. They have time to do these things. You know, and so their house is cleaned with pesticides, their yards are cleaned with pesticides, the golden retriever brings it in, you know, having rolled on the pesticide lawn. Um, it used to be they were eating a lot of expensive fatty meat, you know, filled with hormones. Now, I think they understand grass-fed is better, whatever. But on the adjoining, the wealthy women are using a lot of dry cleaning, right? So their their closets are filled with the plastic-covered, you know, pesticide junk that's in the um, the dry cleaning fluid. And then the poor goes without saying. You're worried about feeding your family. You're worried about heating your home. You're you're worried, and you're more worried today than you've ever been, given what's going on around us that has nothing to do with any governments that we're aware of, um, but is beyond that, it would appear. Um, so the stress and, and the cleanliness, and everybody you know, can begin to do meditation. And we're talking an hour a day, or you know, and for some people it's yoga, for some people it's, uh, you know, it's, it's working out, I don't know, but it's um, walking the dog even. But you really have to focus on stress-reducing issues on a daily basis are just as important as what you're eating in many cases, especially when it comes to breast cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's the first step is to detox from the food you're eating, from the stress that's going on, from your brain waves. I mean, um, CBD and THC are the most wonderful support structures for women when used judiciously to make sure you get a good night's sleep, to make sure you're relaxed, you know, when things are going really rough in, in rough ways. Um, so that detoxification can, of the body cannot be stressed enough. Water filters, to whatever extent you can afford it, you know, on, and on your, the shower thing is really important to have a, and they're like 30 or 40 bucks, a, a shower filter, uh, or, you know, on your, uh, you know, a filter on your shower head. Um, for people who can afford it, the whole house, um, you know, Water filtration, filtration system. system. So you can mm -hmm. take a bath, whatever. But, but filter that water, filter that water, filter that water. Okay, so, so detoxification is one. And that's pretty well known, you know, mm -hmm. and you can get into it. The ones that are less well known, we talked about earlier, the progestin drugs. Birth control, find another way. I know I ended up getting um, a hormone-free IUD in, in the 70s that... I, I don't think it cost 30 bucks at that point. Now it cost 800 bucks and it costs 50 cents to make. Mm -hmm. And the women, American women are only allowed to buy one hormone-free IUD, intrauterine device, because the FDA has blocked the ability of all of the European make models and sizes of hormone-free IUDs from entering the United States. Oh, and we won't wow. get into that, but you can read chapter three to understand why they want women in, the Amer in America to be on the progestin drugs because we make up 4%, of the women of childbearing age in the, in the world, and we 
contribute 47% of all the income made on birth control drugs in the world. Oh my gosh. Because wow. in America, we are no longer able, you know, and all of the advertising now, I don't have a television. I haven't had a television for 50 years, which is another reason why I've been able to be an objective, I hope, investigative reporter. But basically, when they allowed drugs to be marketed on television is when we had the full corporate takeover, um, you know, so that doctors are being bypassed. They're irrelevant. The patient says to the doctor, I want this kind of birth control drug. And you find when, they, it, when that happened, I think it was 88, um, that TV was now able to advertise birth control drugs as well as other drugs that the rate of the sales of birth control drugs went up like this and the rate of premenopausal breast cancer went up like this. Oh my gosh, wow. And so today, the United States, premenopausal women in the U.S. have double, double the rate of breast cancer of women of all ages, let's say in Eastern Europe. Okay? That's unbelievable, wow. Yeah, and it went up 1% from the 80s to today, 1% a year, once TV stations were allowed to be basically funded and, and with the through the advertisement of all of these drugs. I think it's so important to know the history and the economics of it. I love that you have this in your book. Yes. I read a few years ago a book by Holly Grigsball, Sweetening the Pill. You probably have heard of it, and it's a deep look at the history of birth control, and that's yes. very refined, but it completely, and I was already having a lot of issues. I use um, da the Daisy Fertility Tracker now instead of any kind of hormonal birth control, but knowing the history adds to the empowerment, but it really helps you understand why, just how we got to where we are today, and I think that exactly. is critical. Exactly. Well, some of these chapters took me a few years. I mean, it was weird, you know. Um, I just kept unpeeling the onion. And that's when I realized, and this is the second one, that women need to lose their excess body fat. Period. Amen. <laughs> but the problem is that their doctors and the government are telling them that you need to, quote, Jennifer, eat healthy. And, oh, by the way, here's the American food pyramid. Mm -hmm. The American food pyramid is poison. It's poisonous. At the, and, and that was an interesting chapter. Chapter two in my book goes into how the heck we have still ended up with an American food pyramid that has nothing to do with really good nutritionists have known for decades. Mm -hmm. And there was a woman by the name of Louise Light, L-U-I-S-L-I-G-H-T. And I talk about Louise, she died a couple of years ago in her 80s, or 90s, whatever, in Bellows Falls, Vermont, which happened to be like 10 miles from where I lived for 15 years. But I don't know if she was there when I was there. It doesn't matter. But um, Louise Light left her job, you know, at the, was it the, the Department of Agriculture? 
because she was asked to put together a team of nutritionists to come up with the food pyramid. So she did. She said, a whole lot of good fat, some protein, you know, uh, good green vegetables, and sparingly these carbs, the rice, mm. the bread, the beans, etc. And the, her boss, the head of the, the FDA, comes back and the pyramid's been put upside down. And she said, excuse me, this doesn't work. He said, well, this is what we're going to go with. So she quit her job. And she said the rest of the team, they kept their job because they said, oh, well, I guess that's the way life is. And so it's the same with oncologists today. They know, so many of them know, that the treatments going on are barbaric. But they want to pay their mortgages. They want to put their kids through college. And they'll lose all of that. Or they have, you know, they can lose their medical licenses, right? I don't quote me on this, but I know that there's a, they did a survey of oncologists. And I want to say something around 80% of oncologists said they would not do the treatments. If they got cancer, they would not do the treatments they're having their patients do. Yeah, yeah. Tom Seifert has mentioned to me a few times that he gets a lot of doctors coming quietly into his office at Boston College and saying, Tom, and even heads of, of, in one cases, it was a real high mucky muck in one of the large pharmaceutical companies. They said, Tom, I've been diagnosed with stage three, stage two, stage whatever. What should I do? Wow. So, yeah. And by the way, to go back just quickly, uh, there's something called chemothermia, and um, in um, which is a clinic in Istanbul doing amazing work, and they only deal with stage four cancer patients from internationally. If you're a, a Turkish national, they will they will work with you at various stages, but they only take um, stage four cancer patients, um, and most of those ninety nine point nine percent of those patients have been their bodies have been destroyed by the chemo, the radiation, the surgery. They recently, Tom Seifert and others, and he works very closely with all of these, with most of these clinics. Um, They um, just published in 2021 a case study in um, one of the scholarly journals talking about a 50-year-old Ohio woman who, for whatever reason, said, you're not I'm not going to do chemo, radiation, anything, and watched as her early stage cancer, and she didn't know metabolic at that point, and then it became metastatic, and she was very ill. Her doctor, then when she finally went to um, a cancer center, they said, you've got less than a month or something to live. She, I think, started working with Dr. Nasha um, Winters, and she then went over to chemothermia in Istanbul. And um, she, she's now been, it would appear, let's say she's either in remission or she's cancer-free or whatever for the last two years. And she's back to work and everything seems fairly good as opposed, you know, based on what I've read in this case study. Um, and so her body hadn't been destroyed by mm-hmm. the conventional treatment. And when they put her on the ketogenic diet and heat therapy and 
uh, hyperbaric oxygen and a lot of the things that Dr. Keneally is, is using with her cancer patients, which is giving you guys the great success that you have, mm -hmm. you know, so, yeah. um, so we keep going. Okay. So we got the detoxification, we got the no progestin drugs. Um, the, the, the third is, of course, you, you don't want the mammograms. And that's not because, this is chapter five, I almost didn't include mammograms in my book because it's not prevention, it's detection. Mm -hmm. And nobody, and, and that's been brainwashed into everyone's head. Oh, what's the most important thing you can do to prevent breast cancer? And I've done this in front of 500 women. I say, don't think, just, just shout it out. And they go, mammograms. And I go, how does a mammogram prevent you from developing breast cancer? And the looks on everybody's faces, they get really like, and then someone will shout out, well, they stop you from dying early. I said, that may or may not be, but was that my question? I talked about prevention. How do you not get it? And they're like, hmm, you know? And the reality is there's nothing about prevention with mammograms. They're saying, do you have it yet? And what we've already talked about is the mammograms, the only way they can detect this DCIS, this atypical cells, which the statistics show 5% of women diagnosed with DC, DCIS develop breast cancer in 10 years. Well, they also are going to develop heart attacks and God knows what in 10 years. You know, DCIS is, you can turn it around and it doesn't necessarily even go on to breast cancer. Mm -hmm. But they grab a woman, they said, oh, Jennifer, you're fine. We caught it early. You have stage zero. That's not breast cancer, Jennifer. Mm -hmm. You know, right. and, and Jennifer just needs to go <laughs> boomp, you know, and then they want to put you on tamoxifen and that causes its own problems. And it's, it's horrific in terms of your lifestyle. You know, this is when women need to just go. I'm not doing mammograms, so you can't tell me I have DCIS. And I'm not doing mammograms, so you can't tell me I have the stage zero, stage one, which, as Gil Welsh's statistics have shown up and down for the last 15 years, that most of those indolent tumors aren't going anyplace. They're sitting happily for the rest of your life right in, in your breast tissue. And just watch and wait and feel, feel your breasts, feel what they feel. And if you've got a nasty tumor, it's going to grow quickly. Well, mm -hmm. fine. Then decide if you're going to do genetic, uh, you know, or metabolic, but don't go in after these nebulous things. And women, you know, are having their breasts amputated when they, nothing wrong. And uh -huh. that's the, the whole BRCA thing. We won't get into the Angelina Jolie, but that's covered in chapter nine. Nine, nine. Um, women who have the BRCA mutation, they have triple the breast cancer. Women who have the BRCA mutation in the United States have triple the breast cancer of women who have the BRCA gene in Poland. Oh, wow. Or in Albania or in Hungary. Well, why is that? And I talk about that in chapter nine. And I, I have, you know, with tongue in cheek, cheek, come up with the Polish prevention recipe. <laughs> okay. And, <laughs> and I won't go. But, you know, because, well, what, what are the Polish women doing who are born with the BRCA gene? 
that the American women are doing, so they're not getting the breast cancer in, you know, in most cases, whereas they are in America. Mm. So, I mean, the U.S. is the most dangerous place for a woman to live if she wants to avoid breast cancer. It's just what it comes down to because we're making so much money. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, okay, so that we've done the mammograms, we've done the detoxification, we've done the progestin. That's mm-hmm. three. Um, and um, a really, really, really important one, of course, is vitamin D3. And that doesn't, that doesn't um, have anything to do with the suffocation of the mitochondria so much as the D3 has to do with, I call the, the, the D3 in your blood, the amount of um, electricity going through your body that powers your, your internet. You know, so that if you have very low amounts of electricity going through your house, let's say, your internet is for naught. It's not going to load anything or it's going to be really slow, you know, if you're pulling off of a hot spot or something away from your house. So the D3, you really need to know how much electricity do you have in your body, how much um, communication because your D3 in your blood, whenever your mitochondria start to suffocate because you got too much body fat on you, and we have to talk about that one, why body fat is a problem. And it's a big problem, big problem. But the D3 will, if you've got like um, above a certain level of D3 in, in your blood, as soon as your mitochondria start to suffocate, they're crying out, can you please, immune system, come on in and help us kill ourselves? Because we don't want to live, you know, if we're suffocating. Because if we keep suffocating, we're going to communicate to our nucleus to start that oncogene going and start a breast tumor. So we don't want to do that. So our bodies are wonderful things. And they're always calling out to our immune system to come in and get rid of those suffocating little mitochondria. But if we don't have any electricity going through our system, if we don't have any vitamin D3 going through our blood, or not enough, it's going really slowly. Mm-hmm. It's not making it fast enough. And so bingo, you're now with the, the, the suffocating cells that's now making the cancer cells. And the D3, there's not enough to, you know, tamper it down. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's called 60 nanogram. The, the research shows there's never been a woman diagnosed with any stage of breast cancer who has D3 level above 60 nanograms per milliliter, NGML. And so women will say, oh, I'm fine on D3. I take my doctor said D3. I take it every day. I go, no. What is your number? You know, you've got to know if you are at 25 or at 60 or at 80. And what the Institute for Functional, I think it's called the Institute for Functional Medicine, not the sort of AMA crowd, but the real functional medicine people, they're saying if you're undergoing breast cancer treatment, your D3 level should be about 80 or above. Now, um, grassroots health for the the most important information and the most updated information 
on vitamin D3 and breast cancer, or vitamin D3 and really any kind of disease, you want to go to grassrootshealth.net or grassrootshealth.com. They, over the last 10, 12 years, have done the most important work in getting millions of more people onto D3 and getting them to really understand that number is the critical thing. It's kind of like if you're going to, I'm in Boston, you're in Irvine, California. So someone says, well, how many gallons of gas will I need to drive from Boston to Irvine? Well, um, I don't know. How far is Boston to Irvine? You've got to know where you are today before you know how much D3 you should be taking to get yourself to Irvine, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can't just say, well, fill your tank, you know, every day, and I guess, you know, you, you have to know how far you need to go. And for some of us, as we get older, like I cannot get my D3 up to 60 just taking 10,000 IUs a day with my, and there's a whole formula in there. Again, it's all in chapter three in my book. You know, the calcium, magnesium to do this and K2 to do that, et cetera. So, um, so the D3 is really critical, really critical. And the fifth one, because I think we're running out of time here, is, <laughs> is why, you know, it's easy to say, oh, Jennifer, lose your 30 pounds, 20 pounds, 15 pounds, 115, 215 pounds of excess body fat. And why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because suffocate when you suffocate your mitochondria it's inflammation is what's suffocating your mitochondria different things will become toxic and inflame your body and that suffocates your mitochondria and so when you have even 15 to 20 pounds of excess body fat it means your estrogen level is up here and your progestin level is, a progesterone, sorry, progest your natural progesterone level is here. And that means that your excess estrogen is attacking and suffocating your mitochondria. And what's causing that excess estrogen in, in women who are 15 or more pounds overweight? Their body fat. Mm -hmm. Their body fat is generating. It's for men, too. I'm not saying the men don't get, I mean, the, the, the fat men also, or the, the men with excess body fat, they'll also get more cancer. Not necessarily breast cancer, but I shouldn't go here. I haven't done that research. I haven't right, looked at right, this. Right. But it would appear to me from the biology that you could find statistical studies that will say obese men will more often get, I don't know, prostate cancer, breast cancer. I don't know. But, but for women... Certainly the statistical studies talk about obesity and breast cancer and increased breast cancer. So women need to get smart. And, you know, sugar addiction is horrific. And that's what, but they've been following the food pyramid. And sugar is in their oatmeal. It's in their banana. You know, it's in their, their Bagels rolls. there, yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Dr. Joe Mercola, whose work I really, really appreciate. And, and boy, I worked 
with his research throughout my whole book, he's been the first on the importance of thermography for prevention, the importance of weight loss for prevention. He has been miraculous. And he's got like 100 people on his research team. I mean, they really do a good job. Um, but I'm sure for many years he's been pushing this no obesity. And it isn't even just obesity, it's being overweight. And the food pyramid has caused, what, 75% of American women to be overweight? And everybody has these pregnant bellies. Mm. And, and you know, I, I haven't done the research, but what's creating... It's not like they have necessarily fat arms, fat legs. They get these damn pregnant bellies. And, um, and they say that, you know, that, that can cause lots of heart issues and whatever. But that's really, really ratcheting up your ability to suffocate your mitochondria with that extra estrogen that's produced and then kicking you into a, a breast cancer diagnosis. Mm. So those are the five um, simple steps. And they're not, they're really pretty simple. And I think the important thing for women to realize is with losing their excess body weight, if they can focus on getting rid of their sugar addiction first, and then, and I give my little autobiographical spiel about how I went on the ketogenic diet. And I dumped, I think it was 20 pounds. I didn't even know I was doing it. I think I went from, I'm like five foot four, what I used to be five, five, and probably five, three, five, four now. <laughs> and, and I went, you know, you do, you lose, you lose height as you get older, you know, you know, but it happens anyway. Um, and so I think I was like 130, 135, moving to 140, sort of my normal postmenopausal weight. Bam, when I went on the ketogenic diet, and it, it's fun, you really get into it after a while. Um, uh, I, without even knowing it, I dropped to like 115, 110, boom, and I stay there. Wow. Um, so your body has its own metabolic balance it likes. And, uh, and I talk a bit about how I did that. Having, I didn't have a sugar addiction, but that, and there are lots of research and studies and books now about how to get rid of your sugar addiction. So women who feel that that's their issue should do that. Um, and, and then start on the ketogenic diet. And you just need to go into nutritional ketosis, as they call it. Um, you don't have to, you're not using it as a medicine for a cancer prognosis, you know, diagnosis. Um, so it, and it becomes interesting. You're eating a lot of good fat, avocados, nuts, etc. Oh, I know. Keto with Casey. For women who have excess body weight and they want a real one, two, three step and they want a support system to lose that weight. You can't beat keto for Casey. She's got YouTube videos. She, you can go on, you can give her 10, 15, 20 bucks a month and be part of her Patreon thing. You can just go on her YouTube stuff and watch for free, you know, watch her ideas. But she lost like over a hundred pounds going keto. And she worked with Eric Westman at Duke, who is notoriously wonderful in terms of helping people get off of their insulin, the type two diabetes. You basically stop eating sugar and you ignore what your normal doctor's telling you. <laughs> and you get off of your insulin. It's, it's just amazing, but then all of the money that would be lost, you know, by the drugstores. You go into a drugstore, you buy either junk food to give you diabetes, or you buy the, the expensive drugs to, to control your diabetes. Mm -hmm. None of That's it makes so any true. sense when you really look at it. 
So that's it. That's it's so true. Steps. Oh my gosh. Well, it's, I love <laughs> it though, because I could spend five hours talking with you on every, each of these five, like a solid hour on each one, but right, I'm but sure that's that why that's, the book. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. And so just for the audience, the book will definitely be linked in the show notes. I haven't read it yet, but I'm ecstatic to go oh, read this oh, now. Oh, good, good. And people should know that there are three ways you can get it. If you want a signed copy by the, the author uh, of the paperback, you can go to bustingbreastcancer.com and we'll send you out a nice signed copy. Um, and you can, of course, sign up for the, for the newsletter. I'm trying to do one every month. I stopped there for a while trying to figure out the similarities between the COVID unnecessary epidemic and the breast cancer unnecessary epidemic, and it's really scary. But, um, but I'm about to put out, uh, you know, a monthly newsletter. I just got a social media person, bless her, Ebony. So she'll be working hard um, because the book hit number one on Amazon. I was delighted. Oh, yeah, n- not overall, but in all cancer books worldwide and all breast cancer books worldwide. And it's, it sat up there for a while, but then I, I stopped doing the, and that was when Dr. Mercola uh, did this beautiful hour-long interview with me. But of course, YouTube has wiped it off. So if you want it, you can go to my website or you can, right now it's on um, the best platform for people to go to for sort of any health news about anything today is not YouTube. Everything's been wiped off. It's uh, called, um, there's Rockfin is one. Oh no, BitChute. B-I-T-C-H-U-T-E. That's BitChute, B-I-T-C-H-U-T. And you can see, you put Wadia Els Mercola, you'll see that interview. But you also, it will be back on my website within a few days. Okay. Um, Bustingbreastcancer.com. Amazon is selling this worldwide, um, the paperback edition, um, as is Barnes and, no, well, Barnes and Noble, yeah. Um, All independent booksellers uh, can get it through Ingram Smart spark book distributors and the launch edition if you come through my website has full color um images and graphs whereas the the amazon and the others from bookstores are just black and white but they're perfectly beautiful this one the designer was amazing <laughs> amazing you know so and, um so that's and i believe the on your website you do have if i'm correct i was browsing um like a section of other interviews you've done Oh, yes, exactly, okay. and podcasts, though a couple right. of them have been wiped off, and, you know, right. because I'm anti-mammogram, I'm, you know, I'm not going with the government's view, oh. mm-hmm. and the government, as you'll find, is the same as the corporations. We really have no government today. It is run by the corporations, and we're seeing that with COVID. The government has stopped looking at science. They're just speaking what the pharmaceutical companies want them to speak because it's the same people. The head of the National Cancer Institute is always coming from the chairmanship or the presidency or the directorship of Sloan Kettering, Dana-Farber. Right now, the current person is from University of North Carolina Cancer Center. Um, So they're the same people. They depend on the genetic management of cancer, treatment of cancer, theory of cancer to make to pay their mortgages. Yeah. They're not doing it to heal their patients and it's terrifying. So the main thing I wanna leave your viewers with is 
the only group of people who can stop today's unnecessary breast cancer epidemic is you, me, and you. Mm-hmm. Individual women being brave and saying, no, I'm going to go with the science. I'm not going to go with what people are telling me. Right. It's like supply and demand in a yeah. sense. If, yeah. if enough people stop going to a certain supply chain, they're going to have to pivot. That's right. But of course, that's easier said than done. And but it always comes back to starting with the education. And so I'm so grateful. I know Dr. Keneally is so grateful for individuals like yourself who have committed years to this research. (laughs) (laughs) And I know seven, eight hundred people have financed this research. Some were able to give five thousand, seven thousand, ten thousand and a few family foundations. The Lloyd Symington Foundation, amazing group for people who are looking at alternative uh, complementary support for cancer. Lloyd Symington, what a wonderful group of people. They're out in California with you guys um, in the San Francisco area. Um, but, um, you know, individuals, I, I've been in Key West a lot, house-sitting, renting out my condo by the sea, right, to make money in the summer and... and Um, it's been interesting being a gypsy to get the money, but people will always come forth. When you're doing your good work, God does provide. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think that's perfect way to end. Well, Dr. Wadiels, thank you so much for giving us your time. Like I said, I can't wait to go get this book myself, but we'll definitely be linking to all those different resources as well. Okay, and people should, again, go to bustingbreastcancer.com. They can get on the newsletter, and they can also order their book. And, you know, um, and they'll get the signed color edition. Oh, good, good, good. Well, thank you again. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Leanne.